Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. And secondly, to realize that the West is, and the stories of the West are far more um, nuanced um, than they they ever really thought. And that the West is this much more diverse place than than a John movie, John Wayne movie would suggest. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 58, where I sing the body electric. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured, or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at j-o-n at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author David Woolman about his book, Aloha Rodeo. David Woolman is a contributing editor at Outside and a longtime contributor at Wired. He has written for the New York Times, New Yorker, Nature, Business Week, and many other publications, and his work has been anthologized in the Best American Science and Nature Writing Series. David is the author of The End of Money, Writing the Mother Tongue, and A Left-Hand Turn Around the World. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his family. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I'm your host, John Monaster. I'm super excited to be here today to speak with David Woolman about his book, Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. I should note it's also co-written by Julian Smith, who couldn't join us. But uh, David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, uh, I'm real excited to talk about this book. Um, but I think the first thing I like to do is just to hear from the author's own words. You know, what what is this book all about? What what can can readers expect to find? Sure. Um, well, Aloha Rodeo tells the story of two different worlds. Uh, one is the the little known story of ranching and cowboys in Hawaii, and the other is the story of the rise and spectacular fall of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and um, a rodeo there called Frontier Days, and then um, the story of the collision of these two worlds that we're describing, the evolution of ranching in the islands, and then um, what's happening on the, the, the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And these two worlds collide in 1908 when three Hawaiian cowboys, uh, which are called Peniolo, We'll get to that soon enough. Um, showed up at Cheyenne Frontier Days in 1908, uh, and everyone is looking at them with a great deal of skepticism and suspicion, and um, not a little bit of bigotry. Um, and these guys um, mopped the floor with the local talent, and they really uh, showed the world that. Um, Cowboys and cowboy culture is not something that um, that 
Caucasian people have a lock on, and it, it really introduced a lot of um, the world and especially um, mainland America to this thing called Hawaii, this place called Hawaii that had recently been annexed. And to a lot of people on the mainland, they didn't even know anything about Hawaii, let alone the fact that they had this very rich and storied ranching culture. So um, in an unrehearsed nutshell, that's the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. I think that's a pretty good summary. I, I'd agree. Uh, great. Well, let's get started by talking a little bit about the, your creative process and kind of behind the scenes a little bit that always kind of fascinates me, uh, especially for a book like this. I mean, my, my very first question is really, how did you get interested in this? How did you become interested in Hawaii and the rodeo and Cheyenne? And how did you even find or were able to connect those two worlds? Well, Personally, my, my love affair with Polynesia actually began, I recently realized, back in 1995. Uh, I was a college student, and I did a semester abroad in Samoa, believe it or not. Uh, and um, that introduced me to an, a, an area of the world, a huge uh, swatch of the world, I should say, that I really knew nothing about You know, as a kid growing up in New England. And in the two decades since, a number of um, writing projects and other adventures had brought me back to Polynesia a number of times, uh, especially to Hawaii. And on the island of Hawaii, uh, in a town called Waimea at about 2,800 feet elevation, uh, the, this cowboy history is well known. It was sort of um, the epicenter of ranching life in the islands, uh, and to a certain extent remain, remains so today. And in Waimea, uh, people know the story, the kind of the legend of this guy, Ikua Purdy, who went to Cheyenne in 1908 uh, and took first place in steer roping. And there's even a statue of him outside a supermarket there. But the reality is when I bumped into this information about Ikua Purdy, there was no story. It was like a three-sentence factoid. I mean, it would have been the most anemic Wikipedia uh -huh. entry, uh, or may maybe it is perhaps. You know, here's this guy. He was a cowboy. He went to Wyoming. He surprised everyone. He won. He was posthumously entered uh, or in, um, uh, added into the Rodeo Cowboy Hall of Fame in like 1999 or something like that. And that was yeah. it. <laughs> and so, you know, my background is as uh, in journalism. And for a guy like me, you know, even if I'm on vacation, you know, the, the thirst or the eye or the interest in interesting stories, like it doesn't ever take a break that I don't mean that like I'm some savant. I mean, like, I'm probably really annoying my wife because she's like, will you stop saying like, I wonder if there's a story there. Um, and, but when I saw this little tidbit about Ikua Purdy, it really was this immediate kind of cascade of questions, right? Well, who was this guy exactly? And, well, wait a minute, 1908, that is a little more than a decade after annexation. This was a very fragile and uncertain time for uh, Hawaii um, in general and the Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian people. What did that mean? And these guys must have sailed into San Francisco it, it, only a few years after the great earthquake. I mean, what, what was that like to their eyes? And then they must have uh, ridden the train 
from Oakland all the way over to Cheyenne and think about this American landscape that they're witnessing. And, and then, of course, wondering about their reception in Wyoming. And you can hear it now, right? It's like question after question after question. And that was a good sign right away, you know, because then you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe A, maybe other people have these questions and might be also interested in them. And B, maybe there are some answers to them out there. Um, so that is really the genesis of the project, you know, bumping into this little tidbit of information and saying like, is this an onion or is this just a pebble? And then when I did start to peel away at some layers and, and talk to my co-author buddy, uh, Julian about it, um, we wanted to investigate really, were there the ingredients here to make a book, not just a kind of warm but innocuous in-flight airline magazine article. Um, you know, is, is there enough meat here? Sure. And so a couple of weeks of research revealed just some wonderful things. And then we were like, okay, we're off to the races now. I mean, we, we, that's when we learned about, for example, Angus McPhee, the five-time steer roping champion, Wyoming's native son. You know, the steer roping championship had never left the state of Wyoming. And so in, in come these interlopers from uh, so far away. And so we, what was great about that is we realized there was a sports rivalry that we could explore. And that was, that was, that's A, that's just cool. And B, um, that meant we didn't have to hang so much of the narrative responsibility on one moment of steer roping competition because it's a pretty quick contest, right? And so uh, now you have these guys over a number of years uh, becoming the, the best at their game in their respective parts of the world before, um, before we get to 1908. And so that was, uh, that's just a nice example of some of the info that we started to dig up in those first few weeks. And that's when we said, okay, you know, it's time to go talk to an editor about this. We, I think we're sitting on yeah. winner. Yeah, so you know, taking all that research that you had started doing um, how did you then, you know, once you got it to an ed editor and started really working on developing the story and the book itself, how did you start writing it and assembling it and especially working with Julian? Um, I don't, I know you've written other books, you know, was this your first time working with a co-author or how was that process of actually putting the book together? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I have written other nonfiction books. Those were solo adventures uh, and, um, you know, wonderful in their, in their own, uh, individual ways. Julian and I had co-written a story a number of years ago now, kind of a, a fun long form yarn about warring ice cream truck businesses here in Oregon, uh, and their, uh, conflict that escalated to astounding and rather humorous, um, proportions, extent, something like that. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so we knew well, that we could work well together. This story similarly had early on this very natural division of labor in that one of us would dive deeper into the Hawaii history and the, the, the first cattle that came to the islands and the very first bullock hunters and then the ranching and the cowboy history and trying to connect with descendants of our heroes. And then the other guy would tackle the story of Cheyenne and frontier days and um, some of this really interesting and little known history about, uh, about Wyoming and Wild Bill Cody. And so that 
really helped us um, figure out how, how to start sort of the first third of the project in, in the research and reporting. And of course, when either one of us is bumping into interesting stuff, we're, we're sharing it all the time. You know, we're, we're talking, uh, if not working side by side, quite frequently. Um, but, but early on, it was kind of, I was on Hawaii and Julian was on Wyoming, and that's that. And then later, um, the, later you begin stitching it all together. And we did have kind of chapters that each of us took that, you know, that first um, dreaded stab at, at, a, at a draft of a chapter. Um, but there's so many iterations and there's so much um, scrutiny and debate and wordsmithing that by the end, uh, not only, you know, we can't really tell who, who finally had their, their hand on what sentence, but we're hoping that, that readers feel the same. And so far, you know, we've gotten some really nice feedback that people say it's quite seamless considering it had two people. And, you know, that's a really nice compliment to hear when you co-author something because you don't want it to have this kind of staccato effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of the uh, kind of like the Wikipedia effect. You know, it's like it's written by many people, but you can't really tell if it's done well. Yeah, you know, I'm a journalist, so I don't want to be too hoity-toity about literature. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, there is this thing called there is this thing called voice. Mm -hmm. You know, that we care a lot about, and there is a hazard in co-writing something that um, there's. There's just um, an incoherence or a, a discordance when it comes to voice. Um, I would say discordance, <laughs> not incoherence. Yeah. But um, you know, what, but another nice thing about Julian and uh, that that I appreciate, and that he and I we both have a, a very similar sensibility about um, how little interest we have in putting ourselves in the story. Mm. And I know that um, that's a pretty controversial thing to say in the age of mem memoir everywhere all the time. But uh, some of us don't believe that our stories, individual stories are um, as rich and interesting as what might be out there in the world. And so because we both have that kind of sit back and let let your best material really sing um, uh, mindset about the, the work, you know, I, I think that also made um, co-writing a, a positive experience for the two of oh, us. That's great. Yeah. It's, it, it must be feel really good to be able to collaborate with someone that you share that mindset with. Uh, all right. Well, let's hop into the, the book itself because there's so much to cover. Um, first off, I think we just need to talk about cattle because they're so instrumental to everything in the book, right? I mean, uh, so, you know, we start kind of in the late 18th century and we learn about what's happening with Hawaii and how cattle first comes on the island. Um, but maybe just to step back, I mean, why were cattle so important in the first place? I mean, they still remain important today. Um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting how you talked about them in terms of kind of imperialism, instruments of imperialism, but also just for, for their own use. So, you know, how did, how did the cattle get to Hawaii and, and kind of what happened with cattle and why were they so important? Well, during the the heyday of, of the British Empire, um, and and really the great empires generally, um, their explorers and especially um, mariners like James Cook and George Vancouver, as they are 
making contact and potentially making the first ever Western contact with a lot of these places, gift giving is, um, they quickly learned and part of the, um, the strategy or the, the statecraft, I guess you would call it, of making first contact and trying to see if these people will welcome you on their shores and help you resupply with fresh water and not kill you and lend you some food and let you explore or map the place. And the least critical take on the role of cattle is that they were, you know, like scientific instruments or iron nails, they were uh, gifts. And that the British believed that these would be very useful gifts uh, for meat, for milk, um, to help create pasture land. And again, in sort of um, in the least in the least critical way, it, this was not people at the in that time necessarily thinking, "Aha! I am going to offload from my boat this tool of imperialism onto the shores of this place." Like it's a little too. Um, 2020 hindsight in that way. However, there is a lot of language in the journals of personalities like George Vancouver that does suggest that they knew what they were doing and that um, cattle would help to make these faraway places a little more like England. And that, of course, raises all kinds of questions or red flags or, or just to anyone, you know, it's not really a political statement even. It just is what it is. Like they were intent on expanding the British Empire and step one was to make these places look and feel and a little bit more <laughs> like uh, Great Britain, you know, so it's, it was uh, savvy in a way. Um, but again, you know, I, I think, well, we're, I guess more simply, we're just so much more critical of um, colonialism and imperialism today. Whereas back then, um, most of the actors may indeed have been driven more by the sense of of honest gift giving mm. than cultural annihilation and um and cattle were very useful um not at first though so the cattle first get to hawaii let's like move into some yeah, action yeah. here they're offloaded on from these boats uh in um the um late 18th century very late 18th century and uh, King Kamehameha is there to greet Vancouver. It's a very tense moment for Vancouver, who 20 years earlier had seen uh, his captain, uh, James Cook, um, bludgeoned to death and his body torn, torn apart uh, on the beaches of the island of Hawaii. And so now the British Empire is keen to reestablish some kind of relationship with the Hawaiian kingdom. And this is Vancouver's job. So they managed to have um, peaceful discussions on board the ship and on shore. And then there's a one failed attempt, I think, because of weather. Then a couple of days later at a different spot, they were able to deliver the very first cattle, these terribly emaciated seasick beasts that they load off the side of um, the great sailing ship into the, uh, these sleek and super fast Polynesian canoes and then bring the thing to shore and one of them dies before sunset. The other one is um, jumping up and down on the beach. And in the book, we provide a lot of, um, um, of the language from the diaries of mariners at that time, watching the Hawaiians react to this. And uh, 
you know, it's really important to obviously see that kind of history through the lens of these young white mariners seeing this thing happen. And, you know, we write that they, they were literally as ignorant as could be about the culture they were interacting with. And that's not ignorant even in a value judgment kind of way. Like they had just gotten right. there. They didn't know these people at all. So, um, so yes, I'm, I'm sure that those accounts are quite, um, colored by um, racism and stereotypes and this, that. On the other hand, Hawaiians had never seen a land mammal larger than a pig. And here comes this longhorn cattle cow that is running up and down the beach and is far larger than a person. Uh, and so some of these accounts, and, and certainly there are many more in the decades to come, of very frightened people you know, presuming if you want to save your skin, you're probably going to be a little frightened of um, of a longhorn cow like running up and down the beach. So I, I don't think that's um, far fetched, right. I guess. And at least at the very least, those accounts let us um, stand in the, you know, imagine what it was like for those Hawaiians in that moment. Yeah. And and you mentioned how Vancouver's job was sort of to establish formal relations and kind of get that going again after what happened to Cook. So I kind of want to introduce John Parker to the story now because he played such an influential role across the book and the story you told. So who was John Parker and how did he end up kind of like right in the middle of the nexus of the West and Hawaii and and everything that kind of led up to um, you know the, the idea of a Hawaiian cowboy and rodeo and taking care of these cattle. Sure. Um, you know, Parker's story is so delightful for me because, well, first of all, he grew up about like a mile and a half from where I grew up in New oh, really? Massachusetts. That's such a coincidence. Um, and he, um, his story is also such, um, it's such a great example of how there are these very thin lines lines of connection between absolutely everything everywhere. And if you just think that this this world is really, really big and that there are lots of um, unconnected activities and people and and economic industries, like you're just wrong. And Parker's story is is a great example of that. So he was growing up in um, post revolutionary era. Boston, Newton, Massachusetts, and um, as a teenager, like many people at the time, he didn't think where he lived was interesting enough, so he wanted to head out onto the high seas, and he signed on with a whaling vessel, and he was working on a whaling ship throughout the Pacific for a couple of years, had a stop in Hawaii that um, certainly ignited his curiosity in that place. Um, and as we saw through doing this research, and if you just know anything about Hawaii, this happens a lot. People visit that place and they want to mm -hmm. stay. Uh, that time he couldn't, uh, and the ship went on actually to Canton, where he was then um, stuck for a while because the War of 1812, there was a blockade uh, at Hong Kong, something like that. So he's Parker is stuck there. Then he gets back to Hawaii again, and he says, okay, now I'm staying. And in a relatively short period of time, Parker, who got to Hawaii, I think it was 1814 or 1819, something like that, um, this guy um, falls in love with and, marry, and marries a princess 
becomes uh, an essential advisor to the king and is one of the king's ace bullock hunters. And bullock is sort of the, the language of the day for hunting wild cattle up on the mountain. Um, and gradually starts to carve out for himself some small parcels of land. And he is just the right combination of wonderful timing uh, and likability and and I think sort of cultural flexibility um, and an enterprise that he or enterprising that he um, he was able to build over the next um, two generations really a ranching empire in the islands and the Parker Ranch on the island of Hawaii you know at one point it was like three hundred thousand acres the largest privately owned ranch in in the United States at the time and this became sort of the cradle of Paniolo uh, Hawaiian cowboy culture uh, and Parker is sort of the the godfather figure of it of it all yeah I, I, that's a, a great uh, succinct summary I mean it's it was so interesting for me to read about that just to see the influence the outsized influence one person can have and then throughout the book, as you talk about his descendants and the connections that they had and some of the fighting between them and all that, just he really did establish that. Um, so so thinking about then Paniolo, you know, that, that he helped to start, you know, how, how did those first Paniolo, how did they really come to be? And how were they similar or different than their Vaquero counterparts? You know, you talk about this idea of what was happening um, I think it was was it in California or I'm trying to remember what what places the Vaquero were, were were going on. And so, you know, what were the connections there? And and I was really I'm really curious to hear about kind of how you track the diffusion of knowledge across all these different people doing somewhat similar work, but you know, separated by vast you know oceans. Sure. Well, I mean, in this. This touches on a really important theme of this book, which is, um, you know, which is diversity, frankly, and that if you're thinking about the American West is shaped predominantly by John Wayne movies, you, I have news for you. Like the, the first cowboys uh, in the geographic entity known as the American West uh, were Mexican or they were they were from Spanish Mexico. And the Hawaiians learned from them and then the um, – Caucasian um, Americans moving westward learned it from them, and it just seems to to my eye and ear to be this stunningly overlooked element of American history, uh, and something I'd you know I think we talk about uh, we use the word even just like don't be a cowboy or he's a cowboy or um, you know positive or negative, but I just wonder like you know it's the kind of thing I would just love to remind Donald huh. Trump like. You know, <laughs> it just is. So what happened in the islands is we get these very first cattle at the uh, very late in the 18th century. And in the early 19th century, they have this population explosion. So the king uh, put a taboo on anyone killing these animals because they had been a gift from the British. And they wanted to try and see if they could nurture the population and get this sort of utility function out of them that um, Vancouver had been advertising. And in that kind of a society, when the king puts a kapu or a taboo on something, nobody does it. 
because it's punishable by death. So um, the cattle really have free reign and they reproduce a lot. <laughs> and uh, within a generation or so, there were 15, perhaps 20,000 feral cattle on the island of Hawaii and on the other island, major islands as well. And suddenly, uh, this is a major problem because people are frightened to go up into the forests in the, in the upcountry and the cattle are helping themselves to garden plots. They are even goring people. And so the, the king and his advisors realize that something needs to be done. And some of the chain of communication is not exactly clear, but we're around the year 1830 now. The king gets wind of Spanish vaqueros, um, cowboys, working on the west coast of North America, running these large ranches and managing herds and um, setting cattle up for slaughter and building fences, etc. And so they realized that these are the people they need help from because the king had hired Parker, among others, to hunt wild cattle. But, you know, people with guns or people digging little pits in the snow for the cattle to fall into up in the wildlands, like that was not going to keep up with the keep the population in check, like by yeah. any stretch. And so they needed they needed cowboys. They needed um they needed ranching sort of in the verb sense of it. And so they sent for help and they sent an emissary to California or what is now California. And it's not exactly clear how many, but the best info we found was that about three uh, vaqueros were sent to each of the major islands to teach the locals all, all about ranching tradition and skill and just how to do it and how to control these populations. And, so the vaqueros come to the islands and start teaching the Hawaiians. And uh, because of that origin story, really, that's where that's why a lot of Paniolo tradition and their garments and their saddle style and all this have this very um, Spanish-Mexican twist to them. Uh, it's also where the word Paniolo comes. It's sort of a Hawaiianized version of the word Espanol. Uh, and... Um, What's it, one of the things that's fun about this story is that the Hawaiians took to this practice so well and so quickly uh, that the vaqueros kind of put themselves out of a job. You know, it was like the the, the, the student becomes the teacher sort of yeah. situation, and um, and the vaqueros, you know, some of whom were sort of absorbed into Hawaiian society, which was already um, growing more and more diverse. Uh, others uh, went back. To the mainland, we think, to chase after gold fortunes in California and elsewhere. But um, very soon, this practice became a Hawaiian practice, and um, you know that's that's 1840s, 1850s, and so we're we're looking at um, you know more than a century and a half of, of this great tradition back in in the islands that. A lot of people just don't think about that, that there's a cowboy traditions and cowboy culture in the islands. Um, you know, Polynesia has all of these other elements of rich history and rich culture that date back far further. But what one of the things that's really inspiring about Hawaii today is that Paniolo culture is also really being celebrated. Um, and I'll give you one little tidbit that I, I 
uh, I just loved hearing this when we were doing our reporting. Um, because from an ecological standpoint, right, all these cattle are a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, they just trampled over all kinds of native vegetation and the ranchers are planting all these grasses that are uh, foreign to the islands. And so from a sort of raw, um, or I should say from a, a narrower view of just like the ecological well-being of this place, like the cattle are awful. They are an invasive species, um, second to none. However, uh, when we were up on the on the mountain, as they say, this is Mauna Kea on the island of Hawaii. It's like the, the tallest mountain in the world from the seafloor to summit. Uh, we were up there with some land conservation guys um, a couple of winters ago to do some reporting for the book. And, you know, mind you, this guy is a conservation expert. And we were talking about the cattle, and I, I mentioned them as sort of an invasive species. And he said, you know, if you tell most Hawaiians that the, the cattle are invasive species, like I think they'd take offense mm. to that. And it really just added so much more like context or nuance, or I don't know exactly what you want to call it, to the story of, of Hawaii itself and even of imperialism and takeover and annexation and invasive species because, yes, they were animals brought there from abroad and they changed the place dramatically and it was – the British bent on making them a little more British, but they totally made ranching their own. And from it sprang all these wonderful Hawaiian specific, uh, Hawaii specific ways of life and ways of going about ranching that people there today are tremendously proud of. I, I think that is interesting. I mean, I think kind of what, what you're saying up to this point is, is basically that it's not so simple. There's not a black and white, you know, the British were evil. The Hawaiians were, innocence and had to just you know be like they they were able to to manage what was happening to them in a way that they could turn it into something positive you know they didn't just it wasn't just uh kind of game over the british are here you know they were able to work with it and and use it as part of their heritage now and i think yeah that's a that's an interesting point um all right well i want to switch over though and talk about cheyenne now and kind of bring bring that side of the book into the story uh, I, again, I, this is a lot of history that I knew nothing of and, and was fascinating to me. So maybe just give the listeners a little bit of background in terms of, you know, what is Cheyenne? You know, how, how did that town get its start and, and why was it the place for cattle and, and how did it turn out to maybe not be the best place for cattle after a few years? Right. Um, well, and. A lot of our strategy with telling the story of Cheyenne is leading up to what we believe is the greatest rodeo in the world. And to do that, you really have to understand who lived in that place at that time uh, and how they got there. And um, Cheyenne was was really nothing until the railroad. You know, people heading west would go right through it. This very arid place you know, brutal cold in the winter, brutal winds. Uh, and then as we get into sort of the 1860s or so with the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, um, Cheyenne becomes of more interest. And what happens is you have these um, this little town moving in advance of the railroad construction known as Hell on Wheels. Uh, the Hell on Wheels uh, populace settles in Cheyenne and 
uh, some of them bravely decide to stay even when the railroad moves on. And they tried to sort of establish a, a life for themselves. You know, it must have been an impossibly kind of hard scrabble existence there. But what what Cheyenne is and Wyoming as a whole is blessed with is grass. And with the decline of buffalo, really the annihilation of buffalo, um, the grasslands surge back just as ranching in further south, you know, especially Texas, Oklahoma area, um, is on the rise. And you have this, this enormous ocean of grass just waiting for somebody to graze. You just have to get the animals there. And so this is where we start to see the great cattle drives of the mid to later 19th century. The other thing Cheyenne has at that time, of course, is railroad connectivity. So if you have a giant ranch around Cheyenne area, then you can have the cattle there and then you can get them on boxcars and head west, uh, sorry, head east to the big markets. Um, and so in very short order, suddenly people are seeing Cheyenne as a place where they can make their fortune. Uh, and there's this sort of uh, gold rush atmosphere to the place. Um, I think between 1870 and 1880, the population goes from like five to 35,000 or something like that. Um, and there, there are incredible fortunes made in Cheyenne. Um, before Cheyenne's big bust, uh, I think it was per capita one of the wealthiest towns in, all, in, in America. And they have this beautiful opera house and chandelier saloons and these beautiful homes lining the main street. Um, and it must have been, it sounds kind of pat, but it must have been quite a time, yeah. I mean, to, to live in that place at the moment. And, of course, it's still rough and tumble around the edges. There's still um, conflict. Um, particularly kind of the, the last conflicts with the Native Americans who have just been annihilated and completely um, removed from their homelands or the lands that they had hunted and lived and traveled for eons. And, and that is not a part of our book that we sort of whitewash and skip over like a stone um, because the Native Americans become um, really important in sort of the mythologizing of the Wild West and then more specific to our story, the growth of this phenomenon of Wild West shows and rodeo entertainment. Uh, and so, you know, their, their story is in there as well. Um, so then Cheyenne has this great boom, and then things go bust. Uh, and, you know, I, I hate to be too pithy and, or too quick with the summaries, but a lot of it really had to do with fragmentation mm -hmm. because – if people are staking out claims to small areas of land, then these giant herds of grazing animals can't really graze over vast areas uh, or vast acreages. And so this fragmentation caused a huge problem for Cheyenne. Uh, and then simultaneously, um, you know, ranches are being born in still more places around the West. And so Cheyenne's um, ability to really dominate the market capitalizing on the, the grass and rail connectivity, um, it's sort of um, the, the, the rug is pulled out from under all of these entrepreneurs there. And what we try to do is, is in the book is look at, okay, well, then what happens to poor Cheyenne? And really you have a lot of people sitting there scratching their heads of like, what should we do? We need to 
we need to do something. You know, this other town in Colorado, they've got a pickle day and this other place, right. like, I think they've got like potato yeah, festival. What's our day? Uh, yeah. What's our day? What do we yeah. do here? And someone said famously, you know, well, we don't raise anything except hell in <laughs> Cheyenne. And this becomes sort of the, the catalyst for thinking that Cheyenne should hold a big rodeo. You know, we should have Wild West shows. By this time, Bill Cody's Wild West performances are sort of sweeping the nation. And so they decide to hold um, what they call Cheyenne Frontier Days. And it's a mix of entertainment um, and dramatizations of stagecoach holdups and things like that, mixed with some rodeo contests. And what what is born is this massive, massive um, rodeo celebration that, you know, just grows in grows and grows each year. And so by the time we get to 1908 and when our Hawaiian heroes get there, there's like 10,000 people in the stands to watch them compete. Yeah, and I think that was something that really uh, was amazing to me to read. You know, once you start to get to those numbers and think about, wow, like just how popular this is, whether it was Bill's kind of traveling shows and how um, huge that was all across America and Europe or the rodeos and how huge those were. I mean, th these were major, major events of the day. And uh, not something that we'd really think about now. You know, I mean, if, if you ask someone, you know, a hundred years ago, what were people going to see? That probably I, I don't. At least I wouldn't be able to have given that answer before reading this book. So I thought that, that's just interesting to think about, in, in terms of how we uh, take in entertainment, and it's sort of like, you know, what a hundred years from now, what are we going to be doing? You know, where where are ten thousand people going to meet that we can't even think of? Uh, right. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, at the time, you, you know, at the time, um, Cody was arguably the most famous man on the planet. Yeah. Um, he was performing for royalty in Europe, and, you know, they were doing hundreds and hundreds of shows all over the country. And it's when sort of the golden age of the dime novels is happening. And um, what we try to explore in the book is kind of this, this really strange simultaneity of the the closing of the frontier and the end of the, the quote unquote Indian wars and the, the birth of the wild West as this romanticized and glamorized phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, and, and America's addiction with it and to this day. I mean, like cowboys and Westerns, everyone thought that would be like a little fad. And of course, like they could not have been more wrong. And it's really like stitched into our culture now, even if you're in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. and these, so a lot of these ideas uh, are right there with us today. And, you know, so Cody's, um, Cody is such an, a fascinating, um, what is the word for what, what he did there? I mean, he, um, his story really embodies this, this really peculiar simultaneity, I think is the best way yeah, to say yeah. it. That like, like, like the guns, his gun is still smoking from, from real, from shooting Buffalo and being in conflicts with native Americans while he is booking these shows to entertain people taking the train from the East coast yeah. to uh, watch a dramatization of a stagecoach holdup that may have actually just really happened 18 months ago. And of course, uh, time-wise I'm exaggerating a little, but, but not so much. And that, that was really, um, really, really interesting history to dig into. And, and Cody himself had this fascination. Um, he was really puzzled by this question of authenticity. Mm -hmm. You know, he really didn't like 
people thinking that his show was kitsch or that this was just um, was mere entertainment. You know, he really wanted to be educating people. And I'm saying that with air quotes. Um, but he also knew the impossibility of a dramatization being authentic with a capital A. Uh, and so you kind of get in this like um, infinite loop of, of yeah, logic kind of like there tension. of trying to convey something authentically. But if the, if the frontier is closed, it's closed. And um, anyway, that, that was um, that was one of the the really interesting angles of the book that I was I was excited to explore, if for no other reason, because I got to learn. Right. Time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point, and especially as you mentioned in the book, the there were Native Americans performing in his show, looking at you know, elements of horrible things that happened to their people that they themselves might have been involved in you know, just six months, a year ago or whatever, you know, various battles where they were decimated. So uh, that I think adds a whole nother level on top of it. You know, it's sort of like people taking part in entertainment that is based upon, you know, horrible things that happened to them is is a, a particularly odd outcome from from what you've been just talking about. Right. And, you know, and into that milieu come riding these three guys with uh, flowers on their hats uh, from from Hawaii and they're they have darker skin and nobody really knows anything about Hawaii. And, um, you know, the previous days uh, I'm talking. So Frontier Days, it's like a many days yeah. thing right? you have the entertainment and then you have the ro uh, trick roping and then you have the con the athletic contests. So I'm sure that. Um, before the Hawaiian guys actually compete in Cheyenne, there's all sorts of this kind of um, entertainment. Um, and so then for these darker skinned guys to come in and just, um, you know, show the locals how it's done, it really just um, turns a lot of preconceptions about the West uh, on their heads. But, but more specifically, in that time it did. So for people sitting in the stands or people living in Wyoming, uh, and, and one thing that was interesting, you know, so much of this book depended on newspaper archives and you see a very, um, clear trajectory in the newspaper coverage in Cheyenne and Wyoming at that time, because when the Hawaiians come, um, people are, you know, they're kind of curious, but they keep their distance. But there's also a sense of like, okay, Wyoming, let's show these outsiders a good time. And by the way, this is further evidence of how great and wonderful Cheyenne Frontier Days is. We're the center of the rodeo universe. People are coming from as far away as Hawaii. And like, but let's not kid ourselves about who's really the right. Best. It was all part of like this. And that's sort of day. Let's show them a nice yeah. time. And then chapter two is. Um, you know, after the Hawaiians compete on their, the first of two days and do so well, this spirit of um, let's show them a good time is really gone. Right. And it's like, OK, Wyoming native sons, like get off your asses and crush these guys. And um, and of course, that doesn't happen. Um, but, it, it, you know, so even in that time period, it's like they're turning conventional thinking, I don't even want to say conventional wisdom, but conventional and narrow and bigoted thinking on its head. And for whatever reason, this story was kind of lost to history for a long time, or at least only known in places like Waimea on the island of Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a fascinating one. And, and all of the details in the book, I think, were, were really great. You know, I, I think there was a 
you devoted at one point almost a whole page to describing the experience of of writing, you know, and trying to hold on for dear life and not get thrown off, and especially having, you know, the the trio of Hawaiians come and uh, kind of upset all that was, a, I think, a truly American story. One thing, though, that I did think was I wanted to ask you about in terms of, you know, okay, so this happened. Uh, you know, the, these guys won, or, or Aikua at least won, and they came back to Hawaii. You know, that seemed like they were really treated, you know, like heroes. And and you talk about how the newspapers at the time were getting all up in arms in, in Cheyenne about, you know, we need to crush these guys. I mean, I guess one sort of existential question that I, that I had about this is why is... Why are sports so relevant here? You know, why why is it that that so much of the way that we're thinking about culture and you know who's winning and who's losing and you know why is that our surrounding sport? You know, like why why is this story? Why why do we take such time to celebrate our our sports heroes? And why was this such an important way of sort of defending? Wyoming or, you know, making Hawaiians proud about what they had done, you know, like what it's, mm-hmm. it's, is that just because that's kind of the easiest way is kind of a, having a sporting competition or, or why is it that, that we still today even focus so much attention and time on our sporting heroes? It's a monstrous question. <laughs> um, you know, for society as a whole, I, I think, um, I don't know if I'm the guy to comment on why we hold our sports heroes um, so 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 high up. And and you're you're right. I think it's um, it's puzzling sometimes. Um, I think the simpleton in me sometimes thinks that there's just um, like admiring a wonderful piece of art. Uh, there is just something so beautiful about absolute mastery and you know when Steph Curry sinks a three-pointer or when a beautiful skier does what what she does or when Ikua Purdy ropes the steer with this kind of huge looping sidearm throw that nobody thought possible uh it's just beautiful all by itself and that that might be a piece of why we hold sports heroes so high although I suspect you're you're thinking and probably right like that's not we hold them even higher than that. It's, it's more than just admiring um, what they can do in their particular contest. Um, but for the Hawaiians, I know it was such a big deal because these were, at the time, this was Hawaii's really their first non-political heroes. Mm. You know, they really looked up to the queen uh, and other members of the royal family um, before her, um, particularly in the wake of annexation and the, the pain that that caused for an entire people. And with sport, or at least in this sport at that time, you do get this moment of level playing field, or at least on the field. Uh, you know, Jackie Robinson wasn't, that wasn't going to happen for many, many, many years. But at that time, in the, in the early years of the 20th century, um, different minorities are participating in different sports that they hadn't been allowed to in the past. And so they're, and you know, I, I don't want to overstate that in a way that suggests like everything is peachy, you know, because discrimination and racism, bigotry are like, you know, they're all like, 
like ticking along just fine, yeah. <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better term. But um, but in these moments, you know, when you are on like in the, the rodeo grounds or on a football field, um, suddenly you can compete against and, and it's just uh, a man to man. And that um, that is an important moment, I think, especially for groups that have been subjugated when their representatives do so well um, against some other group, you know, and probably the group uh, uh, that is disproportionately in power. And for the Hawaiians, you know, a, a line that has come to mind a lot for me, and I don't even think that made it into the book, was that, you know, these guys, well, what's in the book is that they're such accidental heroes, right? They didn't go to Wyoming thinking they were going to carry the pride of their people on their shoulders. But that is exactly what happened. And when they came home, I think the message that they sent, um, consciously or not, is that, you know, okay, America just annexed our, our, us, our place, our islands. Like, and, and the message is like, well, okay, but you own us, but you are not going to own mm. us. And in a sports kind of way, right? And, and, the, and their, um, their dominance in this rodeo made that very clear. Like you, you may own us in the sort of geopolitical sense of it, but you're not going to own us in who we are. We're going to beat you at your own game sometimes. And, and guess what? You know, we are going to preserve our culture and, and thrives in, in ways that, that we determine, not, not some bureaucrat in Washington. Um, and I, I think that is, is at least part of the answer to yeah. your question of why, why it meant so much to Hawaii in that time and why when they finally sailed home, um, from California and, and arrived back in Honolulu, there's these enormous parties and parades for them. And then when they were sort of island hopping to continue these, you know, luau after luau in their honor uh, because of because of what they had done and um, because how they showed the world um, what Hawaiians could do. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that uh, that was an excellent effort to uh, to answer that to answer <laughs> that question. It's a tricky one. It's just something that I that I, I'm just always interested in, right? Just to wrap things up, I mean, beyond beyond those particular aspects, was there anything else about the book that you wanted to highlight in particular or any other ideas or concepts you thought were really crucial for people to understand or or uh, or that might help them as they read the book? No. <laughs> okay. I think, no. Um, you know, one thing I know, but, but no in a good way because as a compliment to you, you know, you said earlier in our chat, like this, this is a very American story. It is thrilling to hear someone say that because that's what we were gunning for. And we want it to be an American story that overturns preconceptions about the American West. But we, we want people to feel two things, you know, one entertained by this great sports yarn. And secondly, to realize that the West is, and the stories of the West are far more um, nuanced um, than they, they ever really thought. And that the West is this much more diverse place than, than a John movie, John Wayne movie would suggest. And so, um, I'm just delighted to hear you say that you think it's an American story and I, I hope other people do yeah, too. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, so what's happening now? Are you going on a tour? Are you, do you already have other stuff you're working on? What else is, what else is up in, in your world? 
Uh, yeah, so we have sort of um, a, a West-leaning tour coming up. Uh, book is officially launched on May 28th, so I'm kind of in the countdown here, and I think to keep myself calm, I'm trying to jog more often <laughs> yeah. than usual, so I'm not just looking at right. screens. Um, so, you know, there's um, there seems to be a lot of interest so far, which is great. Um, and... I'm going to spend some time in Honolulu, especially talking with people about the book down there. And, um, and I'm excited to do that because it's, it's such a small world in the islands that, you know, quickly you meet people who are um, related to some yeah. of these personalities who we talk about in the book, um, people you didn't know before while doing the research. And so some one woman I, I did have a phone call with while doing the research, she just let me know that she's going to be in my reading in Honolulu. Oh, that's great. Um, so that kind of thing is just great. Fair enough. Uh, so great. If people are interested in, in attending some of these readings and, and uh, the tour, where can they go to find out more information about uh, the dates and everything? Oh, yes. Um, okay, well, I have a website, david-wolman.com, W-O-L-M-A-N. Uh, Julian Smith, I think, is just juliansmith.com. Um, and there's got to be somewhere, just like one poster, <laughs> like the thing that says each place. But uh, yeah, we're going to be in... Um, Portland on the 30th of May and then we are Seattle and Bend and San Francisco and Honolulu and maybe one or two others um, certainly via one of those websites you'll find the darn thing or just like hit me up on Twitter at David Woolman and I will let you Sounds know. Sounds <laughs> good. Alright well let's do a quick thunder round. I'd like a couple getting to know you questions and then uh, then we'll call it a day. Alright? Oh now these are easy. What's okay. your favorite food and or drink? Oof. Um, I lived in Japan for about two and a half years, so I'm a sucker for most Japanese cuisine. I really like, um, just a big pile of salmon roe on rice. Um, for drinks, I really like a Negroni. Yeah. Uh, fair. Yeah. I had, okay. I had a friend that, uh, <laughs> also really likes Negronis and introduced me to them. So yeah, they're tasty. Where's your favorite place you've ever been? Oof. Um, or one of them. Yeah, yeah. One, uh, I'm spending some time on the flanks of Mauna Kea, the the, the biggest mountain in the mm -hmm. world. Um, that on on the island of Hawaii, you know, exploring around there while doing research for this book. Honestly, although it sounds like some pat uh, cheesy book tie-in, but honestly, it is an amazing place over there, and so I uh, I just love going there. It's um, it is kind of magical. I would say a close second would be a an amazing little ski area in Chile called Portillo. <laughs> okay. No. Good. I like it. Uh, all right. Last question. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? You know, the one that jumps to mind is uh, an end to fossil fuel addiction, I think. Um, but the why isn't just so linear with a, trying to hurry up and address climate change here. I think it could also improve economies and, um, and, and the way of life for people and people's well-being in lots of ways that, um, that I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of downstream effects. That makes sense. That's the thunder answer, but that's not the well-thought-out <laughs> answer. You know, writers like to have a draft, and then they like to edit things like a yeah, hundred yeah, times. Yeah. So I have no idea what the real That's okay. Is. This was top of mind, and uh, and we'll take it for right now. All right. Well, David, this was so great to talk to you. The book again, Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and a Hidden History of the American West. Uh, in case you can't tell, it's 
pretty fascinating and uh, get it when it comes out in just a few weeks. So thanks again, David, for being on the show. Thank you, John. Have a good one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. Mm-hmm.